0: Well hello friends and welcome into this online space for a time of learning and exploration together. My name's Brad and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And today I want to ask you, when was the last time that you bumped up against unmet expectations? My guess is most of you are likely thinking, uh, every single day, Brad, and sometimes Unmet expectations are minor. You try a new chip flavor you think will be amazing like the Pringles Baconator and it turns out to taste like burnt hot dogs and gives you indigestion. Or you buy something new and it doesn't quite live up to the expectation and the hype that the salesperson gave you. Or you expect that people will put their dirty dishes in the dishwasher and yet there they sit on the counter day after day after day. Unmet expectations come to us in all shapes and sizes. And one thing to pay attention to, especially in this high challenge season that we're all living through right now, is that the larger our expectations are, the larger our feelings and experiences of disappointment will be when something doesn't happen that we were expecting would happen. For example, you might have had expectations to get into a certain university and it doesn't happen and that impacts the trajectory of your life. Or you expect that you're gonna get that job or the big sale and no matter how hard you hustle or how hard you try, someone else lands it. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you thought it was heading in a certain direction and then as unmet expectations mount and pile on top of each other, it begins to unravel, sometimes after years and years of being together. Unmet expectations can be crippling, and they can lead us to very dark places. We're in a series right now at Jericho Ridge entitled Disillusioned, What to Do When You Doubt. And we've been exploring the notion that doubt is largely neutral. It's what you do with your doubts and questions that really counts. And so today, we're going to look at the example of expectations that were not met and the tragic consequences that that had, not only on the lives of others, but also on the life of the individual in question. We're going to be looking today at the story of Judas, Judas Iscariot. In the Gospels, which are the four accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament, Judas is first introduced to us as one of the twelve followers who Jesus invites to apprentice with him as he's a traveling rabbinical figure in the first century Palestine. We don't know a ton about Judas's background. Scholars do think that he was part of a movement of political revolutionaries who were working in any and every way that they could to overthrow the Roman Empire, who had occupied and oppressed the Jewish people for centuries. And ancient history teaches us that Rome was a very cruel taskmaster, and so there were lots of revolutionaries at this time period. Many first century scholars believe that Judas threw his lot in with Jesus, hoping to force Jesus to instigate a populist uprising against Roman oppression. You see, Judas likely saw Jesus as having the potential to lead a kind of religious protest movement that would result in massive numbers of people following him, rising up against Rome, resisting taxation and military oppression, and finally resulting in a self-governing autonomous Jewish state. So Judas Iscariot must have felt a strong sense of anticipation on that very first Palm Sunday as the crowds gathered in throngs outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And they began to chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is really more of a political statement than a religious one because the word Hosanna in the chant means save And the palm branches in this instance were not just a nice piece of decor. The ancient Jews understood the palm branch as a symbol of victory, a symbol of triumph over oppression. And so as people waved their branches and shouted their Hosanna, it's helpful to think of Palm Sunday more like a political protest march than a tame children's storybook kind of moment. This is a fists in the air moment for many, saying, finally, this is the king who's come to grant us victory over the Romans. Save us, Jesus. Save us. Save us. And I can picture Judas Iscariot thinking to himself, yes, this is the moment. Jesus is gonna do what the other revolutionaries could not do. He's gonna bring liberation and justice and peace, oh I'm so glad that I threw my lot in with him. But if we keep reading the Gospel accounts of the last week of Jesus' life that we're commemorating and celebrating this week as Christians, once they enter Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't actually start busting up Roman legion skulls or calling for the crowds to arm themselves and take up offensive positions. No, he enters the temple, and he teaches about the pouring out and the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit. He challenges, not the Romans, but actually the religious leadership. He doesn't stand up to political overlords. He stoops down and washes the feet of his disciples. And all of this must have infuriated Judas. His expectations. All of his hopes, the last three years of his life that he's invested into this Jesus as a political revolutionary project is all seemingly lost to him now. And so in this light, I actually have sympathy for Judas. I know it's not very popular to say in that his name has become synonymous with betrayal, but Judas was a man who had expectations of Jesus and to be very fair to Judas, they were not met. We're going to talk more about this on Friday in our city-wide online gathering in Easter Sunday, but Jesus did in fact come to Jerusalem in this final week of his earthly life to save people, but he did not come to do it in the way that Judas, or really maybe anyone else, expected. And Judas's level of disillusionment grows and grows, and we get this picture into Iscariot's action and his heart on the final night uh, before the crucifixion. This would have happened on what we call Maundy Thursday, the night before Good Friday. And in John chapter 13, Jesus gathers his disciples in an upper room for a Jewish traditional meal to celebrate the Passover, and this is a time when uh, God's people were rescued from oppressive slavery in Egypt centuries before. And as they share this meal and this evening together, Jesus lets His disciples know that He's going to be betrayed and He's going to die. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to John chapter 13 and I'll be reading starting in verse 21 from the New Living Translation. Now Jesus was deeply troubled and He exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray Me. The disciples looked at each other wondering whom He could mean. And the disciple that Jesus loved, John, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. And Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, hey, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? And Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him, and then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. I find it intriguing that the rest of the disciples don't catch the significance of this moment until later. They just assume, oh, he's the treasurer, he's gonna settle up on dinner and the room rental arrangements or something like that. But in reality, Judas has in this meal and in this moment come to the end of the rope with regards to his expectations. It has become clear to him, Jesus will not be the Messiah, the Savior, that Judas has expected. And therefore there is in his mind only one option, If Jesus will not deliver Judas, the kind of revolutionary victory he wants, then Judas feels that he must deliver Jesus to defeat. He's reached his own burn the whole thing down moment. And John's Gospel doesn't record Judas' interactions with the Jewish leader, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do. Having come up empty with Jesus, Judas now throws his lot in with two forces, one knowingly and one unknowingly. Knowingly, Judas approaches the religious political leadership of the day, and he knows that they are none too pleased with Jesus. Jesus is actually too popular for their liking, and Jesus is also often in conflict with them over their religious ideals. But the religious leaders were also very savvy politicians. They knew they could not just arrest Jesus in the temple, or they would have a public riot on their hands. They needed a quiet place where they could do the deed. They needed access to Jesus' schedule and his private movements. They needed a man on the inside. And so they work up a plan with Judas as their mole. He's gonna provide them inside information on the secret movements of Jesus and a quiet place to arrest him in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. Let me pause here for a moment and say something about the dynamic of personal choice in the tale of Judas and also how to think about this in our own personal lives. See, we're very modern Western people and so we like to think of ourselves as independent unilateral actors in the dramas of our lives and our world. But the story of Judas reminds us that there are also other forces at play. We can also give place or yield to evil forces like temptation and sin. And once we do, this opens a door. It gives a beachhead to the forces of evil. At the start of the dinner narrative, in John chapter 13 verse two, we read that the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And there's some who would argue, well poor Judas, he had no option the devil made him do it. But notice the language there in 13 verse two, the evil one prompted Judas, but didn't pull the trigger. Judas, just like you and I, is still responsible for his own personal choices. Several years ago, Uh, We were in the Southern UK, you know, when we could travel places. And we went south to the town of Dover and the castle there and the amazing maze of tunnels beneath the soaring white cliffs. And it was from this location that the dramatic mission to storm the beaches of France in World War II was planned and carried out. It was the first time that all three branches of the military had been in one location to coordinate an attack on those beaches, because they knew the importance strategically of taking a beachhead. Dunkirk demonstrated that if you can take a beachhead, you can launch an assault deeper into enemy territory. And friends, this is true in our lives spiritually as well. In the story of Judas, in John chapter 12, verse six, we learn that actually as the treasurer of the group, Judas was dishonest and he often took money out of the collective account for himself personally. And so this kiss in the garden is not his first act of betrayal. He's already practiced at smaller acts of deception. And so little by little, deception gains a toehold, and then it gains a foothold, and then it begins to occupy more and more territory until his life, until it reaches the place where he betrays a friend. And the same thing is true for you and me with respect to sin and evil. If you give over ground to evil in your life, you give opportunity for more ground to be taken away. And it's very easy to tell ourselves things like, oh, it's only one little lie, who could it hurt? Or, it's only one impulsive purchase, I'm still pretty good with my money. Or, yeah, it's only one image, one little bit of that movie, I'm, I'm not addicted at all. And friends, many of us, have told ourselves those things sometimes. But also sometimes, when you give up an inch, you are opening up the door to give up a mile. And that's why in the prayer that Jesus teaches us, and I make a practice of praying it daily before I go to bed, one of the phrases is, in Matthew 6, 13, don't let us yield to temptation. You see, when temptation comes, take your stand through prayer, through accountability, and these are just two ways you can avoid giving evil a landing place on the beachheads of your life. So don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not fatalism where, oh, if you've sinned once, you've given up a small bit of ground, it's game over. Not at all. I simply invite you and I to pay careful attention to what areas of our life are under attack, and work to stand firm to mount a defense against the evil one. You might want to reach out to us here for confidential help and support in that journey. Our pastoral team would love to pray with or for you You can email us at prayer at JerichoRidge.com or if you're watching on the Interactive Church online platform, just click on the request prayer button and you'll be placed into a private chat with one of our pastoral team who would be pleased to pray with you about whatever struggle that you're facing. Now let's get back to our story of Judas. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to John Chapter 18, we move from the meal in the upper room to the garden known as Gethsemane, and I'm gonna read in John 18, starting in verse one. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him, and now, with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the Olive Grove. Jesus fully realized all that was gonna happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus, the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him, and Jesus, as Jesus said, I am he. They all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those that you have given to me. In this moment, we see Judas's plan come to full fruition. He betrays Jesus in other Gospel accounts It's with a kiss of identification so that the soldiers know who Jesus is. And the Gospel of Matthew alone goes on to record and develop further the story of Judas' remorse and his death. He sees that once the leaders hand Jesus over to be killed, that this is really going in a direction he didn't maybe want or anticipate. And so he attempts to return the blood money to the priests, who now pretend to be all religious and pious and won't touch it because, oh, that's dirty money. We don't get involved in that kind of a thing. And so in a moment of deep remorse, he throws the money into the temple sanctuary. He leaves and then he hangs himself. The story of Judas ends as a tragedy let's just step back from Judas and ask the question, so what? Other than moving the whole plot of crucifixion and resurrection forward, what does the life and choices that this man made have to do with me? And I think there's a lot of places that we could mine there. The influence of greed, the influence of evil in our lives, which we talked about. A mistaken understanding of Jesus work because one of the questions we have to ask isn't so much what were Judas's expectations of Jesus, but what were Jesus' expectation of Judas as a disciple? And do those expectations that Jesus have of his followers extend to you and me? And here's where I find myself personally challenged by the story of Judas, because I'm forced to ask myself some harder questions about my own personal expectations of Jesus. Oftentimes we think in terms of, well, what do I want from God? What are my expectations of what will happen when I pray, when I give money to the church or to people who are poor? What are my expectations of Jesus? And some of us have had our expectations shaped even unknowingly by our own preconceptions that we bring to the table. Just like Judas, Judas wanted a Jesus who was a political liberator. You and I probably have in our minds a certain kind of Jesus that we want. A Jesus who likes all the people that we like, who doesn't ask too much of us, but feels very warm and fuzzy all the same. But friends, this story is a reminder for us to check and examine our expectations quite carefully because Jesus will not be domesticated into your suburban expectations of his lordship. Jesus upends many, if not most, of our expectations, and just when you get to the place where you think you have this whole Christianity thing figured out, Jesus often shows up and messes up those expectations too, which can be infuriating, but it's also conversely and perhaps surprisingly powerfully liberating Because at the end of the day, Jesus' expectations are the ones that define the playing field. And Jesus said He had come, not just for Judas, not just in that day, but for you and I, to seek and to save. But Jesus is gonna do this in God's terms and in God's way, not in a way that you or I or Judas might imagine. And friends, some of you are still trying to achieve God's salvation on your own terms. And what I mean by that is, you believe that if you're a good enough person or do certain religious activities, attend church often enough, God will grant you access into God's eternal presence. And I'm here to dash your expectations and say that that's not how this works. If you keep running down that road, it is a dead end. You will be frustrated and your expectations will remain unmet. But there is another way. A way where you take your expectations and also your frustrations and questions directly to God and you put it on the table and say, hey God, this is me, this is all of me. I'm here to talk about all of my flaws and my shortcomings, the places where I have unknowingly and where I've knowingly let evil into my life. I'm coming to you and I need you to come and clean this mess up. I need your help in finding hope and healing in my life. Many of you who are part of Jericho Ridge have done that at some point in your life. And friend, I wanna say to those of you who are watching, if you have not done that today and you choose to do that, you cry out to God and you say, God, save me, I wanna assure you that God will respond. Not always in the way that you expect, not always in the timing that you expect, but always, always, always with the sense of grace that you don't expect and that you and I don't deserve, but God lovingly offers. That is the power of the cross and the message of Easter, friends. And so don't go into this week without acting on that. And if you want to step deeper into that place of healing and hope or you want to carry the conversation further about something you've heard today, I want you to email me at brads at jerichoridge.com and we'll celebrate together or we'll help you take some next steps together, next steps of trusting in God and realigning expectations on what it means to be saved and to be a part of God's forever family.